one of the things that he cares a lot about is people being able to find out that they're carrying these different recessive gene variants that could be quite dangerous, especially when they have kids and arming them with that knowledge about themselves. And once their kids are born, finding out about things that might affect their kids in a few years or even immediately. And if the fear that data is going to be misused against the person keeps that person from taking that step and getting that information that they can use to be healthier, that's not a good thing. And we definitely need to change that in society. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 114 of the Health Unchained podcast. Thank you to all of you who are listening and supporting the show. This interview was recorded earlier this year, and the unedited version was shared with our Supercast subscribers. If you hadn't heard, Health Unchained has launched a Supercast premium membership community where you can watch interviews before the rest of the public gets to listen to these conversations. You can find a link to our Supercast website in the episode show notes. And next, I'd like to share that Health Unchained is a media partner for the Blockchain and Healthcare Today Symposium in New Orleans, Louisiana, September 21st and 22nd, 2023. If you're interested in buying tickets or sponsoring the event, please reach out to me so I can help coordinate with your team. Check out the show notes for a link to the conference homepage. Lastly, I'm excited to be working with the Vibe Bio team on helping early stage biotech companies navigate their next fundraising. Don't hesitate to reach out if you are seeking supportive financing for your biotech research and development. With that, I've also started another podcast called Vibecast that's focused on biotech companies and communities. I encourage you to check out some of those conversations on Vibe Bio's YouTube channel. Thank you to the visionaries out there who believe there is a better way forward in our digital society. I thank you and I appreciate you very much. In this episode, I speak with Michael Gear, a legendary tech entrepreneur and technologist who co-founded Humanity Incorporated, working towards health span extension with an app that monitors your aging. In his previous work, he also co-founded Badu, which was used to build Bumble, a famous dating website, and scaled it from zero to 70 million users. So he deeply understands social networks and user experience. I first met Michael in London at the Deeside London event in January. We talk about medical and social data sets, wearables, blockchain adoption, and more. I hope you enjoy this episode and remember to rate and review the podcast in your podcast player. I would very much appreciate the support. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome everyone to the Health Unchained podcast with Michael Gear, who is an entrepreneur working to help people monitor their aging and health with his most recent company, Humanity. He is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at the company, which was founded in 2019. We met at Deeside London, where he spoke about the future of decentralized health data access. Michael, so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Maybe we can get started with a background on you, like who you are, what you've done so far. I know you've done a lot in the space, including being on the founding team of Badu, 
Sure. I'll try to give you the short version, leave out some pieces, but that just adds to the mystery. Yeah, I wanted to be an astronaut. So actually everything that I was interested in as a kid is now like the big spaces. So I'm loving the world today for the most part. So wanted to be an astronaut, was obsessed with the space program. That became a little bit of an obsession also with Soviet Union and Russia. Went over to Moscow to see the other side and randomly met a guy. And we ended up creating what became the largest dating site in the world, which basically spawned that entire, for better or for worse, it depends on who I talk to, who's happy about it or not is uh, spawned that entire dating app space. When was this? We started working on Badu in 2005, and I think we launched May of 2006 before the iPhone, like a different era in the world. Got to 20 million users our first year doing that, which was just a little bit of luck and a lot of great team, right? But then moved over to London in the course of that, met my future co-founder for Humanity, which was serendipitous, Pete Ward, and he was doing a social network at the time. So we were both in that kind of like social viral space, which kind of Led to first a couple of coffee meetings and then a friendship. And when I started to get an idea for something being possible in the preventative health and longevity space, that's when I pulled Pete into it. In the middle of that, went out to the valley and took over operations and grew to an even bigger size, a consumer VPN company called Anchor Free. And so at the height, we had about 900 million users, both direct to consumer, about 650 million, and then about 250 million of that. We were doing like the VPN for McAfee and the VPN for Bitdefender and Kaspersky and all the answers virus players and then eventually samsung actually that's what led into a bit of a connection with web3 looking to decentralize that so that kind of starts tying the worlds together yeah that's pretty interesting you mentioned anchor free can you talk a little bit more about anchor free actually because i think it's really important to understand that context because it does matter in the web3 space as well our mission was to basically make the internet more free, as in uncensored. A few of us that joined grew out of the time where there was SOPA and PIPA, these internet censorship bills going through the U.S. Congress back in the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. And so that was some great people rose up in that time, like Alexis Ahanian was a big leader in that. And uh, Brad Feld and the Union Square Ventures guys were basically fighting these laws that would have broken the internet. It would have allowed any federal judge in the U.S. to basically, because of copyright infringement, take down, tell every internet service provider in the U.S. to take down a website, which would have just killed the internet because you're going to have copyright infringement. And we have a thing called Safe Harbor, which you basically have a reasonable amount of time to take down the copyrighted material once you're told about it. And they were trying to get rid of the Safe Harbor, which would have been disastrous. I think a lot of things go together between the Web3 space and what we're fighting for with consumer VPN is the the openness, the free flow of information. Hotspot Shield, which was Anchor Free's first big VPN, they started getting users because of the Arab Spring. They were basically one of the big ones unblocking Twitter back in that time. There's a lot of shared ethos between the consumer VPN and the Web3 area. But how I got into Web3 was there was one big problem with Anchor Free and the consumer VPN is that you could basically still come to our offices and arrest us. If you wanted to stop Anchor Free, you could find people and you could arrest them. What we wanted to do, not to break the law, but basically to make sure that the weak link was not just us sitting in the office, was to decentralize the whole thing. When we went to do that at the time, this is like 2017, when I started seriously looking into it, it was quite hard because the scalability of Web3 was just not there yet. And even the conceptual understanding of how it could be scaled wasn't there yet. So there was a lot of, it sounds a bit funny now, but back then it was like the thought process was everything should be on chain as in every interaction. And when you actually look at what happens with an internet web service or an app web service that have millions of users, there's no way you want to be running that all through chain because <laughs> you're talking billions of API calls and little bits of information flowing back and forth. I started looking at Stellar and hanging with the team there because they were quite a bit more advanced on the scalability of the chain, at least. Went really deep into it and met a lot of great people, all the kind of people that you know today, like the Solana and all the other chain folks. So how did you get into the healthcare world? 
So me and Pete, my co-founder, we both, and I think a lot of people in the health space, to be honest, when you ask for the backstory of folks that you meet, you have people close to you just get hit with tragic health events, either yourself or people close to you. With me and Pete, it was his dad had a stroke out of the blue. Basically, from that day on, was in a wheelchair for six years and then passed away. It basically just completely killed his quality of life and ended it very shortly. And so that affected Pete quite deeply, obviously. And on my side, I've had a couple family members, a couple relatives find out way too late about cancer or get killed by cancer in the end. And in those moments, you understand very clearly that if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Unfortunately, the cliche is true. And so in those moments, Pete, a little bit before me, we were at the height of our careers. We had these very large consumer internet plays. We were feeling very successful. We were still in our 20s, so we felt invincible. And then the next day, you have these people close to you you can do nothing for other than to just comfort. You can't make them healthy again. And that drove us to start looking quite deeply into the preventative health space, not jumping in and starting something right away. In my case, I really followed that thread through early detection of cancer. Why aren't we screening everybody for cancer? I moved to New York, asked all the doctors I could find that question. As you can imagine, there's a lot of kind of systemic, I would say maybe, you know, kind of BS answers. But the one that was logical, at least, was too many false positives. And that basically means if you screened everybody for cancer, you would tell a bunch of people that they might have cancer. The test thinks it might have detected cancer. It actually didn't. And then you go and you do a bunch of procedures you didn't need to do. And the thought process is you probably hurt yourself more than help yourself. What were some of the BS answers? I'm just curious to know, like, what were doctors also saying in addition to that? Honestly, the false positive one has a little bit of nuance, but at least that was a logical one. I think the people would not understand the results when they got back the results. There's validity in all these things. I don't want to downplay them. However, when you weigh the finding out about cancer in stage three, stage four against not understanding results or being worried about it, it's the weighing. Unfortunately, the balance, I think, is skewed in, in the wrong direction. To be more specific, because basically when you look at that, it's okay, okay, let's get better at explaining results. Let's get better at educating people so that they understand what the test is for, what it's not for. These are all things that we do on a daily basis. Medical people and doctors do very well on a daily basis. I think what happens is when you look at Web3, probably gets this quite a bit. Every time a new technology comes in, it's regarded differently. The system might be dealing on a daily basis with explaining blood results to a person having a person go for a yearly check about something. And so the system deals with all these things already. It's just then you say, well, actually, it's a genetic test. And people are like, "Uh, we got to rethink the way that we look at this. People are going to be confused, all this kind of stuff. I would say those were the two big ones. But yeah, so the false positives, logical. But as an engineer coming from a good Georgia Tech engineering background, my question was, okay, how do you take the false positives out? That seems like that probably should be like the main thing we're focused on. And the good thing is people were focused on that. And the answer was genetic sequencing. And so you're going to put genetic sequencing of some sort And actually, the answer has become machine learning and genetic sequencing and all the above. But so Grail is a good example of something that's come to fruition with the gallery test. So basically, the whole liquid biopsy space is the moniker for it. And so as a maybe slightly full of myself founder, I basically like typed in like top geneticists. I'm going to go talk to these people. And the two names that came up at the time were Craig Venter and George Church. And I don't think I actually told you this on the first time I spoke. Somewhere on the internet, there was instructions of how to properly contact Dr. Church. And they were very explicit. And when I found them and I did that, he basically answered. So it was like, one, two, three, do this, I will answer. If you don't do this, I won't answer you. And then just to quickly add, Dr. George Church, he's a Harvard professor, you guys don't know. And I did have it on my show, actually, episode nine. And I didn't go through those instructions. I actually met him at a panel discussion he was at in Boston somewhere. So I got to talk to him directly. But yeah, he's a very busy person. So I totally get that. Yeah. 
And to say he's so generous with his time and to the point I was a nobody to him and then there was no reason to meet up with me and spend his time, but he did. So I had a great conversation with him that first time that led on to when I moved out to the Valley to join up with the consumer VPN, met with, again, a lot of great people that were also very generous with their time. So there was people from UCSF, there was people from the Buck Institute, which is a longevity focused institute out there in the Valley. And what I started to get, uh, I finally met up with a woman named Kristen Fortney, who runs BioAge, uh, which is a amazing company just had some great results come out of one of their human trials on a drug that helps with sarcopenia, which is basically muscle atrophy in older people. And so met with Kristen and she turned me on to probably what I would say is the final major idea that led to humanity, which was you can look at longitudinal data sets, which means that you're monitoring the same people over decades. And so you have many years of the same person and you can see exactly what happened to them and you have measurements that person's done over the years. So you have stuff like blood tests, you have a DNA extraction, so genetic tests, and luckily for us in the UK biobank, and then there's biobanks that are the common way that these things are held. In the UK biobank, they actually put on accelerometers, which basically monitor your movement and heart rate monitors on people about 18 years ago, uh, about 100,000 people, about 500,000 they have in that biobank. And this idea is that you can look at these measurements of a person in the past and then look at their future health events. So everything that happened to them, this person got was pre-diabetic two years later, was diabetic five years later, this other person had a heart attack in 10 years since this measurement. And so you can come up with predictive models based on this longitudinal data set. And so once Kristen turned me onto that idea and I looked into it deeper, and then that was pretty much when I pulled Pete in and I was saying, there's something here. I haven't figured it all out yet, but like there is something here because I had never, personally, I had never understood how you could, with health, there was nothing for me to grab onto. There wasn't some framework. I need mental frameworks to help me deal with the world. And there was nothing for me to hold onto with all these floating things like, oh, you should drink this because it clears out your liver. You should do this because it'll keep you from getting a heart attack. It was all these floating things, at least in my mental framework. And so then when this idea of, oh, you actually have this data set that's just monitoring the same people over years and years, that made sense. It was like, okay, yeah, I have predictors in the past and you have future events. And when you have enough of those people with those predictors, you can predict the future to a certain concordance. So yeah, and that's when we decided to start Humanity. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think you're right. There's a lot of data silos and information that's stored in different places, shared differently to different people. And there's no like holistic system or framework for us to work with for healthcare. So I totally agree. However, I think the hard part is getting the clean data, health data into one system. It's just actually really difficult. Like you mentioned, genetic information, your activity, what you're eating. There's so many factors. Putting that all together, I'm sure is a huge engineering challenge. So maybe you want to talk to me about that process of what data is the highest priority or maybe something like that. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Most of the time, these things end up not being engineering problems. They end up being policy challenges. Our philosophy with data is basically you, you keep it owned by the user, you keep it private. And I think a lot of people are now looking at it this way. Let's not try to balance between privacy and learning from data because there's technologies that exist today that allow us to do both. And then it's not a question of necessarily an engineering challenge because the technology already exists. So stuff like federated learning, stuff like creating synthetic data, which we can, we can go deeper into, it becomes then going through the process of having these data custodians, the ones that hold all the data, go through the process of moving from this, we need to keep this completely protected because that's the only way to have privacy, but no real learning being done on it, which is a huge loss to this understanding that actually we can keep this data private, but we can still train models on this data and the other data sets that other data custodians have. I think that's moving forward quite a bit now. I think deep learning has finally 
broken that open that two things. One, AI needs more data. And two, everybody's coming awake to the idea that AI machine learning does amazing things with data, as in amazing things for us, as in can save lives. And so I think where we come to it from, and I think that's why we love being a company and not necessarily a, a government or an organization, is we need to prove that it's possible. We will do it with our data and our other friends that run other consumer health companies or health companies will do it with their data. I've come to the conclusion that's the way to do it because you need a shining example. And without really a shining example, you go into conversations with a lot of theory and vision and people don't necessarily follow you. So. Yeah. And I just wanted to add that I did download the app Humanity and I was just actually blown away by the user interface and the experience. It was very clean, very modern. I thought it was like Uber-esque, like the experience. If you haven't tested it out, I think it's only available on Apple. Yeah. It's only on iPhone now. We're going to put up a pre-register page on Google Play within a couple of weeks. We should open it up to start taking in beta users of Android within about two months. But yeah, Apple for now. So one question about it, though, I was able to do a monitor and aging and like figure out my biological age by putting in some information. So that was cool. Mm -hmm. I know there's some options to add your genetic profile and things like that. But I didn't notice any sort of Web3 interactions. I didn't have to create a private key. How do I know I am truly the custodian of that data? Or is that something in the roadmap? I guess two questions in there. One, we are keeping the data private and we don't share it with anybody. We haven't hooked that into a Web3 kind of setup. The first thing we're going to do with Web3 that actually came out of DSI London, which you referenced where we met. I, and I've known the Vita Dow folks for a little while just because of being in the longevity space. And actually, Lawrence, who was one of the core team there, been friends for a while. We always were having great conversations about the new things in tech over the years. So basically, we take about 5% of our subscription revenue and we give it to a cause each year. Of course, we just started a year and a half ago. So we gave about, and we're still a smaller size. That ended up being about $12,000 that we gave. The last time we gave to a cause, which was a cause down in Africa, where they basically fortify grain in different villages. And so the thought now is we're going to do the Web3 components. So we're going to buy Vita Dow tokens with the 5% of the proceeds. And then we're going to, within the app, allow the premium users to vote on each proposal that the Dow has. It's the first kind of semi-integrated way of really getting to what I love about DAOs. There's two big things about DAOs. One is that you allow people to have more say in something that they care about. So they join the DAO because they care about whatever the DAO's kind of purpose is. And then they get to have a say on what that DAO does. So that's great. The next one that I love about DAOs, but won't be a component of necessarily of this integration, is that people can get the proceeds from what the DAO creates, right? In the old stock market way, you call it a dividend. But basically, you put a lot of stuff into this DAO as a person, as a community member, and then you can get some stuff back, whether that be cash or equivalent sort of stuff or early access or whatever it may be. Or even like reputation that you contributed to. There's also that in terms of like identity on Web3 is important. I think that's the social aspect of Web3 is becoming, I think, really interesting, just the way that's evolving. But yeah, I hear you. That's the first integration we're going to do. And DAOs are quite an interesting thing for me. I love the idea of just allowing people to participate more closely in something. I think in health, one of the things I really do not like about the health system today is that it disenfranchises people. It's basically... People are over here and the health system's over here and the health system helped those people. And it's great. You know, hospitals are amazing. The people that work in them are amazing. And there's lots of lives saved. But there's very much ask us when you want to know something as opposed to let's work together. And the reason why I don't like that is not from like a governance standpoint. It actually makes people much less proactive about their health. We're all taught from a very young age to not really be too proactive about our health. Yes, you should care about your health, but don't be too proactive. They say, always listen to your doctor as a thing. I think the doctor augmented our assistant 
assisted with AI and your own actual data can do a much better job at predicting your health and enabling your health because a doctor can only have so much in his memory and brain at a specific time. But if you augment that with AI, there's so much more potential. And we're seeing that just in the last few months with the various different AI tools that have been released, not just in healthcare, but just broadly speaking. All these concepts sound so simple, but until you actually kind of get it into your head, it's just not there. When I watched AlphaGo, the thing I took away from AlphaGo, I think it's a well put together documentary, a little bit of an advertisement for some companies. But when I first watched AlphaGo, the thing that I took away was really that, oh, this idea that we're actually, by watching the AI play the game of Go, we will actually learn about the game of Go and us as humans will be able to play it better. And that concept I actually had never really thought of is more like, okay, the AI is going to do everything. It was going to be binary, but actually it's like, no, anybody that's sat with chat GPT over the last few weeks and went down the rabbit hole a little bit, you feel that, right? It's like a brainstorming session sometimes. So like a good brainstorming session with a friend or a colleague in front of a whiteboard, you kind of can have that a little bit with the chat GPT. You take that into a more formal setting. I think you're right. I think it's the collaborative. This will make the human stronger and better, especially in the next 10 years in healthcare. Yeah. And especially if you think about how that AI system could be improved by also incorporating current events or like the most up-to-date information too, like the web. Because I know ChatGPT, I think goes up till 2019 or something or 21. If there was an AI that we can ask questions to that was always up-to-date somehow, and I think there are companies trying to build this, it's almost limitless, like what you can figure yeah. out. I'm not completely against having some sandboxing because <laughs> I also watched Terminator 2 too many times probably. But I think even today you can take a GPT instance and basically tune it, basically train it on a specific data set and that data set can be anything and that could be the most recent information. So you already can do that today. We're just not necessarily hooking it directly up to the internet. We're not giving it directly to consumers either at this point. But if we're believing in like an open internet world, it's just a matter of time before someone or something gets built like that. It'd be interesting to see the AI build a system for itself. I think not to get too much into philosophy, but I think in healthcare, because it does have some of the ethos of Web3, I think if you believe that people generally have the intents to have themselves and their family healthier and you believe that they generally have the ability and curiosity to try to understand what possibilities. I think we don't do as good a job yet. And I think we can do a much better job at empowering people and really giving them the benefit of the doubt that they both have that intent to be healthier, which I think should not be something that many of us doubt and have the kind of curiosity to spend a little time to understand something that's meaningful to them and their families. And I think time and time again, we have examples that's true. So I think if we lead a little bit more with that, I think we'll be a little bit less scared of handing them technology that stuff like their test results. Let's believe in each other a little bit more. And I think we'll actually see that it will take a lot of the burden that we see, disease burden that we have in the system, because that proactivity will lead to better preventative health. Right. I think the government takes a worst case scenario approach to things and trying to avoid those one-off situations where there's malicious activity. And there is. I mean, you can't argue that there isn't any fraud in the healthcare system, even in terms of sharing patient data. I think that's been going on for a while at different companies. That leads me to the next question. And we already talked a little bit about this, but what is your mm -hmm. position? on data privacy and personal ownership of one's data. And before you answer, yeah. I, I want to make some context here about over the last few decades, we've seen this trend where people are more willing to share their data, even publicly. So things like Facebook, the idea of sharing family photos online for the public was not a thing 20, 30 years ago. Sharing your Venmo payments publicly, those are transactional. Now with the blockchain, everything is theoretically potentially like transparent and public. Although mm -hmm. obviously there are some more secret type of protocols out there. So yeah, what's your position on that? 
I think very simply that people's health data should be owned by them. And if they want to delete it off the face of the earth, they should have that right and have that easy ability. I think what we see is the ability to, if people opt into the health data being used to learn from in the instance that they gave it so that the data never travels anywhere, no one else other than the company that they handed the data to see the data. So within that restrictions, if the people are okay with people learning from the data without seeing it, sounds funny, but it's how the technology ends up working. I think most people are up for that. And as long as that's a clear decision opt-in that they're given, I think that's the way forward. And I can go into more details of how that's technically possible. To contrast that, I think in the past, we've had two systems. One is the system of it's completely private and no one ever sees it. Even the people that could make you healthier will never see it. The NHS is a little bit like that in a way. It's all siloed into little boxes and you got to simply say that your cardiologist can see your health data, which no one wants to have to say that. So that's one thing. It's siloed away too much. But the other thing that in the past that we did a lot of, and you touched on it a little bit, is anonymization. And I think it's fair to put quotation marks around anonymization because what's happened is a lot of times people give data and then it's been anonymized to whatever the legal standard in that particular country is at that time. But unfortunately, it is fairly anonymous if you just see that data set. But then if you buy another two data sets from two other groups and then you plug them together, you're going to find a unique identifier between them. And then you basically can re-identify the person. That's basically how anonymization has not been a good system. I think what some of the AI companies and and MIT also put some good stuff into this. They call it deep learning. And then Google was doing a lot of federated learning. They understood early on is that if they have AI that only gets stronger and stronger with a lot of data and whether they care about privacy or not, that the world cares about privacy or the world governments care about privacy in a way, that they need to build technology and understanding of how to learn, have their AI models learn from a lot of data without breaking people's privacy. And so what they started doing was federated learning. A good example with Google was they don't take any of your text off of the Android phones, but they basically locally train their predictive text models. It learns just on the local words that you've used, and then the gradients of the different models go up to a central place. It averages out, like literally just averages, and then it goes back and it does that hundreds of times. They've built this at scale federated learning system. The last piece that we're looking at now because there are ways to make federated learning more and more secure, but they're just a little bit hard for the common company to do today. And we want any consumer health company to be able to join up with us is to create synthetic data, which is basically you learn all the relationships between the real data, meaning the relationships between gender and heights and heart rates and step rates and all these kind of different data points that you get on a person. And outcomes as well, like health outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. Outcomes, health outcomes. You learn all those relationships and then you take all those relationships, leave all the real data behind. So you have all these gradients of learnings, these coefficients of things, and then you create a whole new fake user set of data, fake data, synthetic. Yeah, I like using the word fake. Obviously, synthetic means the same thing, but I think it's good to say it's a fake group of users over here. But the example that someone gave me was it's basically when you see AI draw a cat and it looks like a real cat. And yes, it's learned from a lot of real cats. But this cat you're looking at is not a real cat. It doesn't. It never existed on Earth, it never lived. And so that's the same thing that happens. So the synthetic data, if done well, and that's a lot of what we're working on as part of our project and other people are working on is if it's done well, then you can train AI models on that fake user data that has all these relationships still there and you can learn from it. And those models can go on to save people's lives or make people healthier. So there's like open banking and different initiatives that have been done with banking data. So it's not new, but it's 
health has been seen a little bit differently. And I think it started to break into the health space. Long answer to your question, but I think that real user data stays owned by the user, never leaves where they put it. When they want to get rid of it and delete it off the face of the earth, they can press one button or send one email and say, delete it, and it's gone. And I think that's what we all should move towards. Yeah, I agree. I think individuals should have the right to own, delete completely their data. To follow up on that question, do you think there'll be some cultural change where as humans and in a society, we start to become a little bit more transparent about our health data in general? A lot of people now share that their lives have been changed because they went to, for example, a mental health counselor or a therapist. So the fact that they're sharing that on their Twitter or whatever leads me to believe that there's some radical transparency in the minds of a lot of communities now that they're okay with being so open about themselves. And I'm just wondering if humans are undergoing some sort of transformation more broadly as a society. And personally, I think I'll be one of the last ones to get there. I think maybe you as well, because we have that sense of data privacy and the importance behind that and the dignity behind that. But I do think that there's a large group of people who don't care. They're happy to share everything if it means faster, better care or faster, better information about how they can care about themselves. So that's like the other idea. What do you think? It's a philosophical question as well. So I don't expect you to have a love, definite answer. Love philosophy. <laughs> we should have a drink next time. Absolutely. <laughs> It is all about choice. And I think that's what we as providers want to make sure that we're bringing to the system is choice. But to illustrate that, when George and other people have these databases of genetics, I throw mine up because I am in the group of whatever will speed things. However, running the largest consumer VPN in the world and just being a human, I fully understand why people would want to have the choice about their own data. And when they're not giving that choice and why they're so mad, it makes a ton of sense. I think on one side, it's fantastic that we talk more about our health things. That wasn't your question, but the example example you gave is such a good one. It's such an important thing for people to know that they're not alone, that other people are having the same issues that they are. It's a very powerful thing. Are we moving in the direction of more openness in general? I think so. If I was to nail down like what I think is the thing that people are most scared of when it comes to health data, it's not that the general public will find out their health data. It's that their health data will specifically be used against them. That's the underlying fear. I don't think plays out that often, to be honest. You might have a better chance of getting hit by a bus, but it doesn't mean that the fear is not valid in the sense of, yeah, I could understand why that would make people afraid. So it's less about their data being used for something they don't want it to be used for. It's more about their data being used back against them. I think as people experience interacting with getting data on themselves and then using that data, I think that really brings the focus back to why the use of the data is important and maybe makes them think less about that kind of possible fear that they haven't experienced. I would imagine that if that continues and we don't experience big examples of people using our health data against us, I would see society probably moving that direction. The good thing, though, is I don't think we need the balance anymore. I think we just lock down the privacy of that data and just use these synthetic data models or, or other things like them, get the learnings. Let's not make a choice anymore. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If we can use technology to avoid sharing the actual data to understand these insights, I'm all for that as well. I think, obviously, it's the use of synthetic data is not... 100% as good as using the actual data. It could be 99%, which is probably good enough, but that's my point. The lost possibilities there, and I don't know if George, I'll have to go back and watch the episode with George, if you talked about it on your podcast, but one of the things that he cares a lot about is 
people being able to find out that they're carrying these different recessive gene variants that could be quite dangerous, especially when they have kids and arming them with that knowledge about themselves. And once their kids are born, finding out about things that might affect their kids in a few years or even immediately. And if the fear that data is going to be misused against the person keeps that person from taking that step and getting that information that they can use to be healthier, that's not a good thing. And we definitely need to change that in society. Appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Like I'm an early adopter of 23andMe and I shared some of that data with the company in order for me to get some information about myself, but I totally understand the opposite side as well and want to keep that data private. If there was an option to do it in a private way, and I think now there is, I would have done it. And we talked a little bit about consent management, the fact that you can share not all or nothing, but some components of your data to the right people, the right algorithms for insights. So I think that's pretty cool, the idea of using dynamic consent management. To what degree does humanity now use consent management tools? And is that a future feature in the roadmap? Yeah, it's a great question. I can touch on two things there. I think a great example of it, and I'll name both because they're my rival companies. So I think both Google Health Connect, which is the new health data repository on your Android phone and Apple HealthKit do a great job of this kind of dynamic consent. So it's very easy UI. You can go in, basically say, hey, I want to share my steps, but I don't want to share my heart rate or I don't want to share my health records, but I want to share my steps and my heart rate. I think it's done quite well. And I think more apps are now both reading from that database and writing to those databases. And I think the system's great. I think it's also cool that there's obviously technical challenges involved with all this, but it's also cool that those are actually repositories sitting on your phone and you need to actually opt in if that data was to ever leave your phone. And then if your phone is not unlocked, I don't know if it's at the level of the ledger or something like that, where it completely has some chip locking it down. I don't actually know on the technical side, but if your phone's not unlocked, then that stored database of your health data on the phone is locked. So I think that's actually quite cool and actually goes towards Tim Berners-Lee's idea of having a data pod that you carry with you. I like that. I think in some ways... There's another concept of Web3 and kind of data consent management. This is where I might start straying from the popular opinion. In some ways, you have this idea that you're going to decide which research is using your data or not. And I think when you're talking about real data and that data is going somewhere, I think that's very valid and important when they will just have access to the learnings from your data or if it's synthetic data. I think it's not a tenable system for two reasons. One, I think people really want to know what their data is being used for in the sense of they want to know what impact they're having as in, oh, that's so cool. My data was used for discovering that new variant or whatever it may be. But in the sense of every single research that's going to be done ends up getting a bit of a gatekeeping, whereas people are like, yes, this, no, that. I don't think it's a tenable system. I think it'd be better for the data to be protected, private, synthetic data being made, and then that synthetic data can be used. Just like we don't have a say on what happens with the internet. I think there's a lot of problems inherent in gatekeeping of deciding what research is valuable and what research is not. So Interesting. Talking about the internet, Tim Berners-Lee, who you mentioned as an icon, really a figurehead of starting the internet. So do you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with him? And then in the previous conversation we had, you also mentioned you had a meeting with Nancy Pelosi at one point. So maybe you could talk about that story. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had the great honor of spending some time with Tim Berners-Lee. It was the last year I was at Anchor Free and I was spending more time on policy, spending more time in Washington, D.C., which can be a good and a bad thing. And so we were fighting for net neutrality. There were certain net neutrality bills going through. I think that was 2018. And Tim was very passionate about that for obvious reasons. He was the guy who invented the World Wide Web. So you had the internet, which was connecting different research facilities, but 
the common person on the street would have no way of really interacting with it. He invented that entire system of URLs and web addresses. It basically made the whole thing tenable for common use. He was quite passionate with his web foundation to fight for net neutrality. We went door to door in the U.S. Congress. And of course, everybody wants a photo op with the guy who invented the World Wide Web. That's coolness points for your constituents. We got to meet with everybody. The particular story you're talking about with Nancy Pelosi. I don't want to throw anybody <laughs> completely under the bus, but I think we can all probably not be shocked to know that many people in Congress don't truly understand what the internet is and how it works. Sitting there in a quite small room with Nancy Pelosi, me, Tim Berners-Lee, and one of Nancy Pelosi's staffers, and it was surreal. <laughs> I won't go too much into the detail of the conversation, but it was just seeing Tim Berners-Lee, who even at that point, I had spent days and days with the guy. I was still a bit in awe when I was in the room with him, still a little starstruck, just watching him explain the internet and the importance of his invention, because she had asked him, like, what do you think the most important thing about it is? And seeing him explain that to Nancy Pelosi was just, yeah. But <laughs> outside of that story, but just because he explained, he got asked that similar question each time. What Tim said to the question of what do you think the biggest impact of your invention was, it was basically, it allowed everybody without permission, without needing to seek permission, it allowed everybody to interact with this technology, to get access to all this information, to add to the information that was out there, to get access to it and to add to it without permission. That stays with me. I think it's so important to understand the difference between a little bit of gatekeeping on access to a technology and no gatekeeping. It, it's the difference between a million people or 100,000 people being able to use something and 8 billion people being able to use something. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind. A lot of people in Web3 understand quite clearly we need to allow access and we can't allow ourselves to feel like we are the ones that can decide who gets access because there's always a lot of good reasons. It's always about protecting something or other, right. but we need to fight that urge. Yeah. And some say that the current internet, the Web2 internet, was just a preview of what's going to happen in the future with the decentralized web and all that. I find it fascinating. I'm going to shift topics a little bit and talk about the wellness space and wearables technology space. I noticed yeah. you're wearing a smartwatch. What do you think about the landscape? It's changed so much in the last five to 10 years. Where do you see it going? Your thoughts? I think it's amazing what the sensors can do now. I think the sensors continue to get better, but now it's even more the machine learning. Hey, if you have line of sight of a vein, that you're going to be able to know everything about the consistency of what's in the blood and everything that we would usually take a blood draw for. That is a matter of time. And I think that's really amazing. I think but you're telling me like with a sensor, we'll be able to detect, for example, how much sodium or potassium is in our blood, for example, at a given moment in a minute. Wow. Yeah. So that can tell us a lot about our metabolism and what we should be doing in terms of diet, activity. So mm -hmm. really cool. I think you named a good one, potassium and the cortisol and glucose. And we tried to find ways to get averages and all this different stuff. But those are things that fluctuate all the time. And the same thing with hormones, right? Estrogen, if you're not taking 10 readings on some of these hormones in a day, you're not really finding out what your levels are. I think it is important that we're actually moving in that direction. Basically what happens, and I'm sure there's much more nuance to this, but for people to get a mental framework for it is you're viewing something. You don't know what you're viewing, but you can view it as infrared. You can view it as more a visual sensor. So when you're viewing that thing, you can take a side measurement with your traditional way of doing it. So let's say blood pressure, you got your cuff, you're taking a measurement, you got your wrist sensor of whatever sort, let's say it's a visual sensor to the vein, cuff reading, visual sensor, cuff reading, visual sensor, get that on 200,000 people, data set, label, label, now your visual sensor can generally tell you your blood pressure 
or where it's ranging, right? You just go through every single one of those analytes and you get the same and then some are easier than others. Some will need a bigger data set. What I will tell you is I've sat through being in technology now for, make me sound old, for 20 years is whenever you're in a meeting and someone says, no, the data is too noisy, it will never be usable. You will be in that same meeting five years later using that data and it will be usable. So never believe that statement in a meeting. (laughs) It's just because people are amazing, right? The sensor gets better. More people have the sensor, so you have more data. Someone's sitting in a mathematics lab coming up with some way that you can actually just understand things better with a different algorithm. You combine those three things and things have accelerated quite a bit. So I think the sensors will be able to tell us a lot of stuff. There'll be a lot less breaking of the skin for things. I personally really love the ring factor. I don't want to watch. I don't want to wear a watch, but some sensors are only on the watches right now. I think there's also going to be a consolidation. I'm guessing Apple or Google or someone will grab Aura one of these days. My personal prediction, no inside knowledge. We can get into a whole conversation about wearables. There's more invasive ones for glucose monitoring now that are consumer friendly, but I don't think we'll have all the time to discuss that. But you did mention Apple and Google a couple of times. Yeah, I actually tested that for two weeks. I had two of them, actually. I thought it was pretty cool. I think towards the end of the two weeks, overall, I thought it was awesome and I think accurate. I actually didn't test it against anything else. So I don't know. But anyways, Apple and Google. So those are the two major ecosystems in place right now in terms of apps and things. Yeah. On the wearable side, you would also name Samsung. But on the ecosystem side, you're definitely right. It's just the two. Yeah. Do you think that's good for the internet? Centralization? Yeah, because you have these two organized, centralized operating systems, essentially. I think two is definitely better than one. Looking at how fast and now, say, OpenAI does something and then finally Google does something they should have done three years ago. Every day we see how important it is to have real competition. Should it be more decentralized than that? Yeah. OpenAI came about because they got a lot of funding to go and try to do something. I think a lot of times we have brilliant people that get into this circle. of, Okay, we'll give you a million. Come back in, in a year. Oh, you're not making enough revenue? I'm not sure if we want to give you the second million dollars. We're definitely not doing what we should be doing to actually create five more Googles and five more Apples. So I think that's something that the investment community needs to take on, at least think about whether they're really doing what they want to do, because most people get into venture because they want to create the next Google or something. It's not to eke out a 5x return. It's more for the stock markets and private equity. Would it be better if we had more? Yes. Are there things that we can do to create more? I think definitely. And I think OpenAI was an example of let's give $100 million to someone and go at it, go at a problem. I think it's important also, though, that when we do make those big bets that, yeah, us as a society try to be a bit more open about it. I think we've had examples like with, I'm sure there's been great stuff that's been created within Calico, but no one has any idea in the longevity space. Mm. It's very little kind of understanding of what was done inside and what's that led to. But I think with Web3 and DAOs and the ability to take the friction out of a bunch of people coming together for a big cause, that's pretty exciting stuff. Like a friend of mine is looking into creating a DAO around epilepsy. And I think there's a lot of people that care a lot about epilepsy and mostly because tragically someone they love has it or a friend. And I think seeing some of those examples get quite large will be quite fun over the next few years because it does go to the entire Web3 ethos of let's allow communities, mission-driven communities to actually have some of the uh, tools that companies and governments have. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of having patient-led DAOs or patient communities that can help encourage research into their specific disease area, I think that sounds great. However, I think the governance of a DAO and the voting mechanisms that we have now, at least, and the tooling is a little bit early, still getting figured out. And I think that's fine. I think it's going to take time to figure it out. But the impact it will have once it's easier to create these communities and govern them, 
I think it's going to be awesome, <laughs> right? Theoretically, I think it'll be great. You'll have this communication. People will learn from each other. Seems mm -hmm. good. So I guess my question to you about this is what's the biggest barrier to adopting blockchain in healthcare in this way? And maybe uh, let's we could focus on patient DAO specifically because I know blockchain in healthcare is very broad. I can only speak for my knowledge. And honestly, I haven't looked into it deeply other than the few DAOs that I just happen to know people at and I've looked at. But generally, from what I've seen is that we haven't gotten enough of these full loop case study examples where people put funds into a DAO, they vote on proposals, those proposals then fund different projects, whether it be IP or equity, and then that IP generates revenue or the equity gets sold, money gets back into the DAO, you know, it, and then you vote and do more proposals and it continues continues on and does great things. To me, that's the biggest barrier because I feel like people are getting the idea. There's barriers how easy it is to buy a token and stuff like that, but I'm very sure that the Coinbases and everybody else in the world will make that easier and easier. It takes an hour or two hours to tinker around and you can do it. But I think the biggest thing is that will really start driving the machine is a couple great examples of the full circle coming around because that, in my view, hasn't really been proven. There's no reason to believe that it won't happen. Yeah, the kind of framework in theory makes sense. You invest into something and then you get returns from that but those returns come back into the pot and you reinvest it. It makes a lot of sense. I think that's the biggest barrier, honestly, is just people having more of those examples of it successfully working. And I think more people will come in. Thanks for sharing that. In terms of humanity, what's your outlook for 2023 and beyond? We wanted to get humanity the app to hundreds of millions of people and make them healthier. And obviously, as we get more data, we'll find out more specifically what will work for you and what will work for her and more personalized understanding of that path to health. I think the other thing that is a big mission of humanity is really to be a beacon for the things that we really believe in. One is that you can have data-driven, personalized health guidance, and we want that to be everywhere, not just in the humanity app. The other one is that you can actually keep the user data private, create the synthetic data, and then all of us should then be able to learn and train models on that synthetic data. And so that's right now, I'd say a side project that we have, but we do see that as a big impact in the future if we can get it to work. Everything we do is a collaborative effort. We don't see ourselves as a lone company. We're not hoping to be the one or two companies that are doing something. We want to motivate everybody to do very similar things. Awesome. What are some ways people can connect with the company? Is there like a developer hub? Do you guys have any openings for people to join? Yeah, it's a great question. I'd love to hear from anybody that can reach out to me directly. Uh, all of our developers have a GitHub presence, but I would like us to establish more of an open source area around our work, but that's a future thing. So reach out to me. I think as we go, other consumer health companies that either have consumer health and they want to learn more about this idea of creating synthetic data and then learning from all of our companies that do federated learning, definitely want to hear from them companies that create synthetic data would love to hear from them and then yeah as we go we'll support more and more DAOs because i really love that space so hopefully you'll see a humanity app voter on many of your DAOs in the future awesome i appreciate that how many users have used the app do you have a number of active users or signups yeah, so we've had about 150,000 signups and we've been in the App Store for about a year, almost a year and a half, year and four months now. Yeah, so just early, early days, but already I have enough users that we're actually starting to be able to see different categories of users, like different gender, different age, different weights, what is going to be most impactful for them. The machinery is already working and starting to give more personalized guidance than you would get anywhere else. Waze changed traffic navigation. Before Waze, the company that Google eventually bought, we were not using real-time data to see what was the fastest route to get somewhere. And then Waze came along and said, hey, why don't we just track all the Tel Aviv taxi drivers GPS? And we actually know that if you take a right on the left, you'll get there five minutes faster than if you go on the highway. And we should be able to do that for health. We had the big question, can we? And so in the last year and a half, we've proven that we actually can. So that's, I think it's a very exciting time for health. I'm very much looking forward to Web3 becoming a bigger part of that. 
Yeah. First of all, thanks for sharing all that. And I do have a few more questions. So I appreciate your time. You mentioned some of the Web3 projects, DLT projects. Are there any that are particularly, you think, doing really important work that you just wanted to mention or bring to light here? I mentioned the one that I love. I think a lot of them are so early, but I think Vita Dao has been around long enough now that they've learned a bunch of stuff, what not to do. They've learned what works and they're still learning every single day. I think just getting out there and having a fully functional DAO is great to see. It's great to see what they're doing. And they're focused on longevity, which is obviously a big focus of humanity as well. A friend of mine started a DAO called Athena DAO, which is focused on female health. And I think it's great, obviously, a huge category that is underserved. And I love this kind of idea. And like I mentioned, like my friend is looking to start a DAO around epilepsy. These themed DAOs that make sure that their focus is not underserved, right? Health equity is a big problem of distribution of resources. DAOs that are focused on very specific ones and can keep themselves to that mission, I think are fantastic because one... When a person like myself says, hey, what can I do to really promote better female health and female health research? Now I can say, oh, I'm going to go to Athena Dow and start getting involved, right? If I want to get more involved in helping against epilepsy, that ability to more easily find those. I think the Dow structures is a great one. I, I really, like I said, I think we need to see more of the loops and see it fully functional. But what I've been lucky with in my career is being able to, when I see something, generally know if, if there's something there or not. It's hard to pinpoint it. But if I look at the whole Web3 space right now, there's something definitely there in the Dow space and we just need to iterate and learn. Yeah, that's fair. It is early, like you mentioned. I actually did interview Laura from Athena Dow, episode 104, if anyone's interested in listening to that. And you mentioned longevity. That's focused for Vita Dow. And this question, you might not be able to really answer it from a medical point of view, but maybe you could. Is there a limit to human longevity? You know, people talk about living forever somehow. Yeah. I'm not a doctor. I'm an unpracticing aerospace engineer. <laughs> Never practiced. No, there's not a limit. Being in so many meetings in the tech world over the years, the data is too noisy. Okay, five years later, the data is not noisy. What you start to see is, and I always use this example with my team, it's a little bit raw, kind of motivational, but Basically, the same week that the Wright brothers had their successful flight that kind of really broke open the flight space, the same week, there was a New York Times op-ed that basically said it will be a million years before humans really can fly. It was just an absurd thing to say. This was said by a scientist, too. It was an op-ed from a scientist. I think it's good for all of us to like take a moment. You need to look at a lot of the research, but just take a moment and be like, why? There's so many examples of creatures that live hundreds of years. There's different trees and different tortoises that live like 100 feet. There's so many examples of things that live much longer like why would it not be possible to extend so the whole space blew up years and years ago because oh man i'm blanking on her name but it's cynthia that she basically discovered with c elegans she was knocking out genes in a c elegans which is a worm and she knocked out one and it lived making up a number but let's say three times longer all of this research basically proves that no there is no limit as in there's no speed of light problem there's nothing that we haven't figured out it's how we get there and how it will be applied and what it means for society these are all amazing questions and things a lot of people are working on. Is there a limit? No, there's absolutely no scientific reason why there's a limit. So. Great answer. That's really awesome. And you remind me about a quote, actually, this is from early 1940s. IBM's president, Thomas J. Watson, reportedly said, I think there is a world market for about five computers. And he's the president of IBM. So it's pretty interesting. To, I agree. There are mental limitations we put on ourselves, or we think that we can only achieve a certain amount of progress, but yeah. maybe we could live forever, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, I also think if you're not a doctor, you shouldn't go in and start practicing medicine and the people what to do medically, but it's okay if you're not a doctor to 
logically try to get an answer for why something is or isn't, right? If a scientist or a doctor or the expert in the situation can't clearly explain to you why something is or isn't, then maybe they don't actually know, or maybe they don't know as well as they think they do. It's okay to engage with spaces that you're not an expert in, because I think it leads to good things. It leads to people challenging tightly held thoughts that maybe shouldn't have been held so tightly. Yeah, we've learned a lot over the many millennia about humans and things, but there's still so much to learn. I think there's a, the mysteries of the universe are endless in my view. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. In May of 2023, Ledger, a hardware wallet manufacturer, announced a new service called Ledger Recover. The service allows users to store their seed phrase, which is used to recover their cryptocurrency in case of loss or theft with Ledger. However, the announcement has been met with criticism from the crypto community, who are concerned about the security implications of storing their seed phrase with a third party. Ledger Recover works by dividing the user's seed phrase into three encrypted fragments and storing each fragment with a different entity. If the user loses their seed phrase, they can request Ledger to combine the fragments and then decrypt them. However, this process requires the user to provide a valid email address and phone number, which some users see as a security risk. In addition, there is concern that Ledger could be hacked and the user's seed phrase could be stolen. This would give the hacker access to the user's cryptocurrency. Ledger has said it has taken steps to secure the service, but the community remains skeptical. As a result of these concerns, many members of the crypto community are urging users to avoid Ledger Recover. They argue that it is better to store the seed phrase offline in a safe place. Ledger has said that it will continue to offer Ledger Recover, but it is unclear how many users will choose to use it. The wallet provider shared that Ledger Recover is an optional subscription for users who want to back up their secret recovery phrase. You don't have to use it and can continue managing your recovery phrase yourself if that's why you bought a Ledger, the company explained. As every good crypto veteran knows, not your keys, not your coins, but it's more complicated than that. But it's more complicated than that. As an affiliate of Ledger, I felt that it was important for me to share my thoughts on this issue. I don't think all people will be able to self-custody their cryptocurrencies themselves. Many people can and will choose to self-custody, and that is their much-respected choice. If we envision a world where health data, social data, identity is wrapped up around a sole backup private key, it's going to be very important that we figure out a good way to recover wallets. It will be interesting to see how Ledger Recover is rolled out. We're already seeing hardware wallet competitors flaunt their tech as superior to Ledger. However, as we know, computer technology has developed so quickly that it's difficult for most to understand how much data is being collected and impossible to be 100% certain that you are ever digitally secure. We're living in a world of probability. It's up to you to decide if it's more probable that you lose your own private key or that a third party who's contracted with you steals your private keys. You can find a link to Ledger's Recover FAQ page in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy listening to it. And now back to our episode with Michael Gear, co-founder of Humanity Health. What is the most influential book you've read? I saw this on your list of topics. 
I don't read a lot of books. I read a lot of scientific papers. I read a lot of long form blog posts. Maybe taking it away from all the science and all the text. So maybe I sound maybe slightly more well-rounded. I think the one that influenced me when I was younger was On the Road to Jack Kerouac. There was a line in there, which I could still quote it. I used to be able to. The only ones for me are the mad ones, the crazy ones, the ones that are mad to live, mad to love, goes through a couple iterations. It's so summed up, I think, what's really enamored me with a lot of spaces that I've been in. is You put me in a room with George Church is a great example. You put me in a room with George Church and you've made my week. Just being in the room with that intensity of idea creation, and not just idea creation, but going out and doing big things. You put me in a room with Tim Berners-Lee. You put me in a room with even Kristen Fortney. She might be embarrassed if I said that. Put me in a room talking with Kristen Fortney and learning about the, the great things she's doing. That's what drives me in life. That positive energy and that, hey, if there's not a reason why we can't do it and it will make people's lives better, let's go do it. That book, I don't know if it changed me, but it definitely spoke to me with that kind of thought process. So. Interesting. What are your thoughts about the singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045, according to Kurzweil? Can you define the singularity for me? Just to make sure we're talking about the same thing people define it differently. I think Ray Kurzweil defined it as a point in time in which we would not be able to distinguish the difference between the general artificial intelligence, AGI, and humans in a way. So I don't know if that means we're uploading our consciousness into a computer or something. It's not super clear to me what it is. It's just an interesting philosophical question. So to not being able to distinguish, I don't think we're too many years away from that. We might already be there. <laughs> smooth out a few video editors and do a little bit more stable diffusion database and you're probably not too far. I think the interesting point that you noted at the end there, I'm a big proponent of the belief, I guess sometimes I play a futurist and my tint on futurism is if we can't be excited about the idea, then maybe it won't happen because we're the ones that are actually going to create it, right? If you are a person listening to this podcast and you're like, I don't really want to upload my brain to a computer. I like my flesh. I want to keep living life. I want my flesh not to get disease and be functional, but I'd rather actually just stay human for the for 100 years, 500 years. I feel like the uploading of the consciousness is a little bit flying cars in the sense that, yeah, it sounds like if it would be a cool thing for science to be able to do that, but do we actually want it? And because we don't want it, it probably won't come half as fast as we think it will because we go towards things we want. Will we have the ability science-wise to do stuff like that? That's 20 years from now. Okay. <laughs> that's my prediction. Ah, that's about in line with what, 2045, so that's fair. Yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> final question before takeaways and wrapping up. So there's been a lot of developments in the psychedelic space in terms of helping treat mental health and illness and disease. What's your take on that development over the last few years and where do you see it going in the future? Yeah, I think I've definitely seen a lot of bad stuff happen because of the war on drugs. I grew up in the U.S. Nancy Reagan was speaking to us. We had our D.A.R.E. programs in our schools and everything. Drugs do very evil things, but when we start a war on them, it seems to do a lot of evil as well. It's very good, I would say, from my view, because we do use drugs in healthcare and we do use drugs definitely in mental health care. Uh, it's very good that we're widening out and not limiting what drugs we're looking at, what compounds and substances we're looking at to test and see if they can help people. From what I've seen, there's been a lot of great early indications that some of these substances can be quite useful. I think the neuroplasticity, basically rewriting neuropathways, if a particular thing like PTSD or something like that seems to be like a bad set of neuropathways in the brain, and then we have a substance that can loosen up that knot, <laughs> this is all not scientific speak, but like rewrite those pathways in a quicker manner. We hosted a dinner with our friends that run Calm, the meditation app. So we hosted a dinner with them and also one of our scientific advisory board members, Tamson, Dr. Tam. And we had Tim Spector, who does great stuff in like gut health. But one of the guys 
very bad with names, blank out his name, but one of them was a psychiatrist and he's done a lot of research with psychedelics and the MDMA as well. And he said it best, the excitement that the field has now that they finally have a new tool to go along with their therapy and their treatments and to try this tool and to see that it can sometimes double, triple what they've seen in the past, the effect of the treatment, but use the psychedelic and that he hasn't seen this for a long time. And he's been in the kind of psychiatric space for a long time. So just seeing his excitement and what I've read, I think we'll see big things in the space. And I think it's going to be really good for people. Some of it will work, some of it won't, but I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Michael, I really appreciate your time. And this has been a fascinating conversation very insightful. I think the audience is going to love it. Do you have anything else you want to say? Anything I didn't ask perhaps that you want to make sure the, the audience takes away? Yeah. Well, thank you, Ray. Love the podcast during this. You've named a few that I need to go back and listen to. And if you have an iPhone, download Humanity, join our mission. I would love to speak to you if you're investing in the space, if you run a federated learning startup, if you do synthetic data, all of the above, reach out to me. Awesome. You have a great weekend. Appreciate it, time. You too. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.